3: Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone.
4: If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at IBM.com slash Code IBM. Let's create.
3: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian
5: Sager. And today we are tackling a topic... That is actually the first topic that I ever covered at How Stuff Works. Oh yeah. Yeah, when I was hired four years ago, uh the first thing that I ever worked on was a video series called Stuff of Genius and the first video that I proposed that we do <laughs> was about Jack Parsons. And Wait, this
1: was your first assignment right out of the, the gate? It was
5: sort of like, they didn't really give me assignments so much as they were like, build this show and so uh, my producer Paul, who's still here with us and works on a lot of our projects, the two of us got together and we had like five ideas and Parsons was one of them and we went to this library that I was working at part time and it, we shot a couple of these. It was real bizarre, super embarrassing. It's all still on YouTube. <laughs> but like, I played this weird, like, sort of doctor character who oh, yeah, was beard, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still had uh, facial hair back then, mm-hmm. and I wore like a suit, and I stood between like collapsing library shelves and did an episode on Jack Parsons because I was actually just interested in Jack Parsons and had just finished reading a book that actually we're going to reference a lot today, which is called Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons. It's written by George Pendle. Pendle is going to come up a lot in the literature today. He is like the
1: go-to guy on, on Parsons. So we're going to dive right into it here. Let me tell you something about Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons was a man who wanted to break free from the confines of the early 20th century. As author George Pendle points out, quote, Parsons had his rocketry as well as his normal life. He discovered other worlds by imagining going in a rocket to the moon. He wanted to explore this new frontier. He saw both space and magic as ways of exploring these new frontiers, one breaking free from Earth literally and metaphysically. Yeah, that's a good way to encapsulate it. He... He
5: is one of these characters. We occasionally, I'd say like maybe once a month, once every two months, hit upon these fascinating characters from history that are a weird amalgamation of scientific insight and like occultism.
1: Yeah, I think we've called them uh, what, the counterculture of injuries before. Yeah,
5: yeah, Parsons would definitely be on there. Although he's
1: a little bit before the time of a lot of the folks that we've covered, I think that's one of the shames here is that he feels like it feels like he would have been more at home uh, living alongside uh, you know John C. Lilly, and, yeah, and, and part of the more you know the more mainstream counterculture uh, resurgence of the 1960s. But he didn't mm-hmm. live that long. Yeah, I kept thinking of John C.
5: Lilly going over this research again. I think they would have been fast friends. Yeah,
1: and he also, as we'll discuss, reminds me a lot of John D. Doctor John D. from uh, Elizabethan times. Yeah. So who was Jack Parsons? Because so, I know a number of you just are, are still confused with who we're even talking about. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, he was a rocket engineer. He helped found both the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL, and the Aerojet Engineering Corporation. He pioneered the use of liquid and solid rocket fuels and actually built the first rocket engine to run on castable composite rocket propellant. And at the same time, he was a figure of counterculture mystery, consumed by occultist ideas, uh, sex, and alternative political models. Yeah, so if you have heard
5: of him, or if this is all of a sudden, like, you're going, oh, wait, I think I know what they're talking about. It's because of that, because he has been... Uh, launched up to this sort of legendary figure status after his death i think though really it peaked maybe in the late 90s early 2000s and then pendle came out with this book i want to say in 2006 maybe
1: yeah the, the interesting thing about parsons is that what well, he's certainly been celebrated and held up by you know such counterculture voices as robert anton wilson uh I, I think i have no fewer than three individuals on my friends list who have worked on plays comics or other fi- fictional, fictional treatments of parsons yeah like he's taken on this heroic form in that scene and yet at the same time, he has often been downplayed in the scientific community, and his, his legitimate contributions there are often a, a bit forgotten. Actually purposely erased, as yeah. some people
5: accuse them. Pendle, among them, says that uh, at first he was a footnote in the history of the JPL, and then he was even erased from the footnotes.
1: And again, he reminds me of Dr. John Dee in many ways. He's, he's this contradiction, uh, standing on the barrier between science and magic. Uh, Pendle puts it this way. Parsons seemed devoted to reconciling opposites, smashing together the technical and the spiritual, the white lab coat and the black robe, fact and fiction, science and magic. Yeah, so Parsons actually found magic and rocketry
5: to be similar in the sense that both at the time that he was working on them were disparaged and derided as being Impossible, but both also presented him with a challenge. And I also think this is an important note uh, that I think I got from Pendle's uh, writing, although there was a lot of research for this episode. Uh, Parsons saw himself as being part of a lineage of scientists that stretched. All the way back to Newton, he thought of himself as being more of a natural philosopher. So, of course, he saw everything from magic to poetry as part of what being a scientist was. Again, very much like John Dee and his contemporaries, and that it wasn't just like scientific rigor, but also just sort of being... Uh, a renaissance man, I suppose you could put it. Uh, and so that's why, I mean, he, he has a book of poetry that you can go out and buy right now. Uh, I guess it's still available. Uh, yeah, it's, it's still available. I don't know if you can get it on Amazon. Okay. Uh, but it's out there. Yeah, well, I have notes about it at the end of the episode. But, and then, of course, was doing all this magical stuff as well. Um, why don't we start off with his early life, though, and kind of work our way up to the crazy kinky stuff? Yeah,
1: yeah. Hit us with the the basic deets, the basic origin story here. So
5: he's born in Pasadena, California in 1914, and his actual first name was Marvel. Um, and he was named after his father. His father was also Marvel Parsons. Uh, so his real name was Marvel Whiteside Parsons. Uh, but when Marvel Sr. abandoned the family after committing adultery, Parsons' mother just started calling him John, and then friends eventually started calling him Jack in later life. So that's why today everybody refers to him as Jack Parsons. Nobody says Marvel Parsons, although, hey, it's a cool name, especially given what we're going to talk about today.
1: Well, that's the way it always is. Give a child a cool name, and they will change it to something mundane. Right. Give a child a mundane name, and they'll hate it their whole life and maybe change their name to Zargon. <laughs> yeah, we don't know what his actual... I mean, he could have had, like, uh,
5: nicknames within the Thelemic cult that he was in. like If if Crowley was the beast, maybe Parsons was something, too. The critter? The the, the critter. (laughs) So in 8th grade, Parsons meets his future colleague, Edward Foreman, and they become fast friends. They're both fans of science fiction. At the time, this meant Jules Verne stories and Amazing Stories magazine. They started experimenting with fireworks and constructing their own solid-fueled rockets in Parsons' backyard. Now, an important thing to know here that's not in the notes is that Parsons came from a pretty wealthy family that had ties to, like, old money back east. And they were on hard times, though. So they sort of lived in this rich community in Pasadena, but I think, like, they were barely able to scrape by. And part of that was because his father had left. So they're in his backyard. They're making... Basically bombs. (laughs) Like, as little boys do, you know, and this is when he first starts using glue as a binding agent with loose powder and this becomes important way later on and is really like his key discovery in terms of Rocketry and its influence on NASA. So l- later in life, this is uh, obviously there's no way to corroborate this, but later in life, Parsons claims that when he was 13 years old, he summoned Satan. So he was into like occult ideas even back to his childhood. Uh, and he called the experience terrifying. But it seems like this was like the sort of uh, instigating event that got him into the occult uh, side by side, along with rocketry. So he's in high school. Him and Foreman are buddies. They're making bombs in the backyard, rockets. Parsons uh, starts working for the Hercules Power Company. He graduates from high school in 1933, and then the two of them go to Pasadena Junior College together, but neither of them graduate. They both end up working at Halifax Explosives, which was a company that was based in the Mojave Desert. Parsons couldn't afford his tuition fees. So this again goes to the you know the thing of like he came from old money but he just he didn't have the the wealth to pursue a higher education like
1: traditionally. Yeah, I think his his background here with the with family and money is is interesting because you see this throughout his life. He does seem to live his life like a guy who who has come from money and yeah. occasionally has access to a lot of money but uh, inevitably squanders it in one way or another. Yeah,
5: yeah. It does seem to be sort of like the waves in his life are mm-hmm. up and down with, uh, with his finances, but also just like in general, I think because he was raised in this family, like he thought of himself as being upper class, even though he didn't really have a lot of money. Right. Um, So important going forward too. this whole thing about him never graduating from that college is part of why he was never really accepted as part of the scientific establishment. And Parsons marries his high school sweetheart, Helen Northrup in 1935. This leads us into his experiences with rocketry.
1: Yeah and again this is a key area because this is this is where he definitely had you know outside of his his later effects on popular culture uh, this is where he had an impact on the world yeah so you know, he's important uh, as an
5: innovator. I don't want you to think that this is like a guy who just fiddled around with rockets and then also was a magician, right? Like, yeah. He has an important legacy in the history of rocketry together with a group of other rocket enthusiasts that were unfortunately named the Suicide Squad. That's even more unfortunate now that we have a movie, <laughs> a terrible movie with that name. But uh, Parsons developed a solid rocket fuel that has evolved into the same kind of stuff that we now use to fire objects into space. So the solid motor in the space shuttle, the motors in the Minuteman missile, those were both based on the solid propellant technology that Parsons invented. And here's how the story goes. He and Foreman go down to the California Institute of Technology for a lecture, and they meet Theodore von Karman of the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratories of the California Institute of Technology. For short, that's referred to as Galsit, I believe.
1: Now, I want to throw in, everyone has heard of Werner von Braun, and you may have sort of von in your, in your mind as being like German rocketry, uh, but uh, this individual, um, uh, von Karman, he um, he was Hungarian. Yes, yeah, although Werner von Braun
5: was a correspondent with Parsons, and yeah. did admire his work. Yeah, yeah, and spoke up for him mm-hmm. in later years. Uh, so von Karman introduces Parsons and Foreman to Frank Molina, who's a student at Caltech, and it turns 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 out they're all interested in developing rockets, but no one takes them seriously because at the time everybody was like, Rockets, that's science fiction. Like that's that's goofy stuff. Uh, it's considered a joke or insanity, like if you're actually gonna try to, like, blow your way, blow yourself up to the moon or something like that. Well,
1: the crazy thing is that all of these rocket scientists of the day were heavily inspired by science fiction, Werner totally. von Braun included. Yeah. So there's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's used as a, you know, to, to, to say that what they're doing isn't important, but it's also, in a way the guiding light of what they're doing it
5: reminds me of an experience that we had when we did one of our live shows we performed at a Star Trek convention mm-hmm. uh, I don't think I've told the story on air before but this is fun but so lots of people know like Star Trek had a great influence on people getting involved in science yeah. Uh and in, in the same way that these early science fiction stories had an influence on Parsons generation right before we went on stage I was in the bathroom and this guy came in and asked me what we were doing uh, and I when I told him him, you know what our podcast was and what we were covering. He lectured me on this and wanted to make sure that I knew that how many people in the audience knew more about science than I did before we got up <laughs> on stage. Okay, so anyways, von Karman uh, approves their research basically, even though these uh, Foreman and Parsons aren't even students, but they they file it all under Molina's PhD. Pre- Proposal, uh, and von Karman himself remembers Parson as a quote delightful screwball. So they begin experimenting on the campus, but they have two explosive accidents on the campus. One supposedly left a like uh, rebar blown into a wall. Okay, Ooh. like it was that bad. Uh, so they move their experiments near something called Devil's Gate Dam, which is at the edge of Pasadena and the Arroyo Seco. A it's a dry canyon, basically. And this is where they get the nickname the. Suicide squad because they're just blowing things up constantly, and the the other kids on campus, you know, give them this reputation. But they are eventually joined by several other students. Now, on the rocket testing range, this is a fun fact Foreman and Parsons were renowned for holding gun duels where (laughs) they would try to shoot at one another's feet without flinching. So, this is already like this is a guy who's definitely into like thrill seeking and adrenaline,
1: right? Yeah, and it very much seems to have never grown up because I, I remember being a kid and have you know horsing around with fireworks. I have, I have a friend, um, uh, this guy Oz, who has this enormous scar in his arm from being shot with a flaming arrow when oh, he was a child. Wow. Yeah, so <laughs> he seems to have carried that spirit on into his adult
5: life. Uh huh. Yeah, but. In 1938, the U.S. Army comes along and they look at their research and they say, hey, do you want to work on this research project we have? We need to make rocket engines for small aircraft. So the Suicide Squad says, yeah. They try powdered fuel at first, but these rockets that they're they're building are unstable. And the fuel combination that's inside them, basically it's prone to settling when it's in storage containers, which adversely affects the temperature when it launches, so it's unpredictable. The story goes that Parsons watched a roofer applying hot asphalt on top of a building and he remembered the stories from his youth about greek fire being used as an incendiary weapon yeah this would have been used by the the greeks uh, like in ship to ship combat yeah. yeah yeah it's like uh for those of you who are game of thrones fans it's like the green fire yeah. that they use in that big scene uh so he adds binding agents like hot tar to potassium perchlorite powder. And this provided a clean and even burn so they could put potential of this into what's referred to as jet-assisted takeoff. or Is it JATO or just Uh, J-A-T-O? I like JATO. That's the acronym that's used for it. Uh, And so the military says, all right, we're going to invest a little bit more money in this project. And this leads to the basis for those rockets that launch us into outer space.
1: It's uh, important to note that uh, that JATO, J- jet assisted uh, takeoff, and also uh, rocket assisted takeoff, or RATO, uh, th- th- this was a big deal, and uh, and indeed Parsons was instrumental in developing JATO rockets. So the key application during the war, and it's re- and it's essential to remember that Parsons was born into an era of World War, and uh, and and ultimately total war. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was to boost the takeoff for military aircraft. Uh, with these, you could actually reduced the reduced the distance required to get a plane off the ground by 30% and uh, I think a lot of us
5: forget about like that this period of history. We just think like, well, planes were invented, and then <laughs> then they became like you know the the commercial airliners that we use today. But it's obviously there were a lot of steps in between, and this was a major one.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you can cut takeoff by thirty percent, you need less uh, takeoff area, you need less landing strip. And the the other cool thing is that this allows you to better utilize uh, a strip that has been damaged by bombs or some other kind of an. Assault. If, if you're in a war zone, for right? Instance. Yeah. yeah, And there were a lot of war zones at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the German Luftwaffe at the time also used this approach, and this is a topic I've I've long found fascinating. They would use rockets to assist the takeoff of intercept planes, such as the amazing jet fighter, the Messerschmitt uh, 262, and they also used it uh, as the engine for the rocket interceptor, uh, the uh, the Messerschmitt 163 Comet. Uh, so this was. With the Germans, this was called the Starthilfe rocket-assisted takeoff unit, and this would have been used 1937, 1938. Uh, There were other planes that used it as well, the Arado 234, which is a jet bomber, and uh, also the the Messerschmitt 323 Giant also used these. The Giant, for anyone who's not familiar with it, was essentially this enormous guppy-looking glider. Okay. And... It was used to carry, like, a massive amount of equipment, and then they adapted it with engines, and they had to, they had to, these were planes where you had to use the the rockets to just get it
5: moving. Right, okay. I'm picturing, like, and this isn't even probably a modern equivalent, but, like, a C-5A, like, those really big planes that we used to carry uh, Mm -hmm. tanks and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, so... The U.S. tasked, again, von Karman and his team, which included Parsons, with developing uh, JATO in 1939. They tested it out. It was implemented. Another key area is that it uh, it helped bombers or cargo planes to take off with incredibly heavy loads. Okay. And in the post-war period, uh, this, this kind of rocket boosting, this becomes pretty standard for a while due to the low, slow-speed thrust of existing jet engines.
5: So we get to this point where actually... You know, Parsons makes this discovery, but it's really JPL engineer Charles Bartley who later improves on it by replacing the hot asphalt with thiacol Polysulfide polymer, and the team is granted a thousand dollars woo at the time that was a lot becoming the first government funded rocketry research group in history, so you know everybody was laughing at them and basically saying like these guys are idiots, they're just trying to you know replicate some science fiction stories uh-huh. but then like it turns out like not only is this applicable for wartime but it's also like. A really profitable commercial business,
1: yeah, and becomes one of the like like rocketry in rocketry technology becomes one of the like the, the guiding technical advancements for the rest of the century mm-hmm. and even today. Yeah, they had to
5: use a quarter of that money though, so two hundred and fifty dollars to pay for the damages that their <laughs> explosions had already caused to the Caltech buildings on that campus. Around that same time, so we're talking nineteen thirty eight here. Parsons actually gave testimony as an explosive. Expert in an attempted murder case by Los Angeles's police intelligence chief. Apparently, he tried to kill a, a PI, huh. and uh, with a bomb. So Parsons reconstructs that bomb and establishes himself as an expert and is like a key witness on the stand. Then, in 1940, Parsons and foreman. I mean, they're. No pun intended, but their are rockets rising. Yeah. Uh, they are on the cover of Popular Mechanics magazine. 1941, they successfully strap a booster to a small aircraft, ignite it, and that allows the vehicle to take off in half the distance that's usually required. So the U.S. Air Force then is like, we're all in. They fund them very well, and this allows them to found the Aerojet Engineering Corporation. So Parsons was a founding member of that. Now, the Suicide Squad group... Also founded the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at the California Institute of Technology. We've mentioned that already. But think about this. Like the JPL, you've probably heard the name before. In fact, when we did that Star Trek convent- convention, the JPL had a booth on the floor. Oh, yeah. yeah they, did. Uh, they are partner of NASA's, and they help do things like launch Mars rovers, X-ray telescopes, and gravity mapping spaceships. I mean, they are heavily involved in our major scientific enve- endeavors of the day. In 1943, the military actually took over their operations. This is when they changed the name to the JPL. And they developed several weapon development systems that are based on the liquid and solid fuel technology that the Suicide Squad invented. This is the, the Suicide Squad movie I want to see. Is yeah, like yeah. The, the biopic about these guys. After the war, the military attached a JATO, to a German V-2 rocket, and they sent it 70 kilometers straight up, making it the first American rocket to exit the Earth's atmosphere. So this is why NASA then takes over the JPL in 1958. One other thing, this isn't really relevant to all of the Parsons stuff that we're going to talk about today, but... Many of the Suicide Squad members end up later being investigated
1: and even jailed for supposed ties to communism in the 50s. Yeah, I mean, it can, it can be, I think it can be tough to really put ourselves in that 1950s mindset here. But, uh, you know, the Cold War was a time during which the threat of nuclear war was very real. Everything seemed frozen in this terrifying conflict, and paranoia was rampant. Entertainers with communist leadings risked being blacklisted. You know, certainly I think everybody's familiar with the Hollywood blacklist uh, and and tales spinning out from that. But academics suspected of communist uh, sympathies could be frozen out as well so parsons and many of his colleagues they lost their security clearance and this left them unemployed parsons as we'll discuss was left to pursue other employment options outside of you know central rocketry research yeah and we'll get into that there's a whole
5: story behind that but there's also the build-up and this didn't help him either of his entire involvement in the occult so let's take a quick break and when we get back let's delve into sex magic
2: Ever wolfed down a Big Mac and thought, I could use some extra cash? Mm-hmm. Meet Drop, the ultimate rewards app. Earn free gift cards for getting your daily coffee or late night drive through effortlessly. Just link a card, shop, and watch rewards stack. With Drop, it's like getting paid to indulge. Download Drop now and start earning. Use the code DROP22 for $5 in points instantly.
6: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
4: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure or OCI. That's oracle.com slash strategic, oracle.com slash strategic.
1: All right, we've we've uh, we've prayed to our, our gods, our, our pagan gods of advertising here, and now we can start discussing Parson's involvement with the occult. All right, so why don't you tell everybody
5: about Aleister Crowley, because this is the toughest <laughs> part, I think, is sort of establishing who Crowley is and sort of what the belief system was.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's intimidating to talk about Aleister Crowley, because he is a character that, on one level he defies brief explanation you yeah. really need to do a deeper dive into him and at the same time there's so there's so much conflicting information even from the man himself oh yeah about who he was what he was what he was up to and and he, he lived a big life so he lived in uh, that life uh, by the way it went from 1875 to 1947 so he had a good stretch there uh, he was a Prime counterculture figure of the day, if not one of the, if not the prime counterculture figure of the day, he engaged in bisexual hedonism, recreational drug use, and uh, you know both before either was really fashionable. I, I would say, <laughs> and uh, and of course he established his own uh, recreation of ceremonial magic and new paganism. He was also a bit of a a provocateur and a con man. And I don't mean that as a slam, necessarily, him being a con man, because how can you lead your own counterculture, occult movement, and not be at least a little bit carny, right? Also something that's going to be very
5: important as we discuss Parsons. But uh, this reminds me, we were talking about this before we came to the studio. I've been reading this graphic novel that Douglas Rushkoff wrote called Alistair and Adolf that's Uh all, I I think it's semi-fictional, but it's about how Alistair Crowley used his influence in the intelligence community to try to help influence basically uh the german army so that the allies knew where they were going to be
1: yeah i mean this included people like um uh ian fleming uh mm-hmm. He's a of character James Bond. In it, yeah also dennis wheatley uh dennis wheatley incidentally ended up writing the book the devil rides out which we talk about in our satanic panic episode right yeah um yeah he this is a guy. You get the impression that Crowley definitely like, oozed charisma. It was just a fascinating character. Uh, so yeah, he rubbed elbows with a lot of important people at, at varying points in his life.
5: Yeah, and in fact, as you have a note here, he's the one who claimed to have invented the V for
1: Victory. Yeah, I always thought that, that was Churchill. Well, again, this is the thing with Crowley. It's he wrote a he he was a he wrote a lot about himself and about his ideas and uh-huh. his thoughts. And you just run into the the situation of how much do you trust him, how much of it is just part of his bravado and this image that he's creating, and how much can you take to the bank? Uh, Again, a (laughs) fascinating character, though. The real basics, though, on Crowley,
5: because, man, we could do like a whole podcast series just on Crowley. Oh, yeah. Uh, so early in his life, he joined the occult society known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. But he was actually expelled from this for, quote, deviant and homosexual behavior. So this is a guy who's getting kicked out of secret <laughs> magical societies. Uh, then he joins the occult secret society. Apparently, there were, there were a lot of them back then. Ordo Templi Orientis. This is in 1910. He rises up in their ranks and becomes the leader of their English-speaking fraternities and he reinvents their belief system to his own religion called Thelema, or the Thelemic religion. And it's mainly about free love, sex magic, and sort of the idea of, as he called it, do what thou wilt. It was a philosophy of individualism and self-fulfillment, and the sexual rituals that he sort of invented for this were supposed to lift your
1: consciousness to a higher plane. Now, I do want to add that... Magical exploration of sexual energy itself was nothing new. Mm-hmm. Uh, you find terrific examples of this both in uh, Chinese Taoism and in Indian yogic traditions. Uh, I mean, of particular note, you have uh, the Tantra. Yeah, yeah. Th- this rose to prominence within uh, Hindu traditions in medieval India around the fifth uh, century, and uh, and it may even go back further to, the, to that to the Indus civilization uh, of uh, you know thirty three hundred to thirteen hundred BCE. But uh, just to give a, just a quick example of what the, the the tantra consisted of you'd have male and female uh, tantrikas and they would they would bathe they'd uh, dress and doll up purify through medi- meditation and uh rec- recitation of uh, mantras and then they would uh, form into male and female couples they would uh They would unite sexually, and this would be the the pronunciation of mantras turning the the female partner into the embodiment of a goddess, the male into a god. So on a mythic level, they would reenact the cosmological union of Shiva and and Shakti, uh, Deva and Devi. And uh, I think all that's rather interesting in light of some of the uh, the activities of Crowley, Crowley and uh, and uh, Parsons that we'll discuss. Yeah, I
5: mean it's hard to imagine
1: that Crowley was unaware
5: of tantra or other like mm-hmm. sexual rituals in varying cultures. I feel like he, like again like the whole con aspect like like he plucked things from various uh, you know ideas that he had learned about, and he sort of molded it together into this. Super charismatic uh,
1: cult, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, it, you can look at it two ways. On one hand, if you're selling something to somebody, inevitably you're just taking an existing product, rewrapping it, and selling it as something new. Yeah. And then, in terms of uh, new religious movements, which we talked about in a recent episode, like all that is doing is you're, you're taking existing ideas and motifs and making them apply to the modern. Uh, world in a new way, yeah. in a way that connects with modern individuals. And we see somebody else do that to Crowley
5: himself, mm-hmm. <laughs> Not, just in a short while. Somebody rather famous. So Crowley actually, uh, here's a fun story about this guy, fakes his own death in 1930 while he's rock climbing in Portugal. And then three weeks later, he reappears and he's like, ha ha, I'm alive. <laughs> um, Parsons for his part. So what is, what does all this Crowley stuff have to do with Parsons? Parsons was a fan. So Parsons and his wife actually joined the OTO's Pasadena chapter in 1939. And this was called the Agape Lodge. Parsons began corresponding with Crowley. So they're writing letters back and forth to one another on a regular basis. He purchases a mansion in Pasadena and he turns it into a commune of creative types where they're just constantly having these wild parties. Like more than one article that I read about this talked about how like the neighbors hated the fact that parson's lived there because he would have these like crazy black magic sex parties and like like one of the stories was like something about a naked pregnant woman jumping through like hoops of fire or something like that you know just like who knows if that's real or not
1: but supposedly this house was pretty wild well he was living large in a time when there was a very buttoned-down idea of what an individual was supposed to be and how you fit into society. Yeah. And so you've got people hanging
5: out at this place. It's called the Parsonage, by the way, <laughs> uh, like Robert Heinlein, Ray Bradbury, and Elron Hubbard. Uh, at the time, L. Ron Hubbard just coming out of the war and uh, a burgeoning science fiction author. Yeah, and it, this is before the uh, the writing of Dianetics and yes, the founding of the Scientology. So Parsons is able to convince the police every time they show up for one of these complaints. He's like, look, man, I'm a respectable Caltech scientist. I work for the JPL. These neighbors are just complaining about nothing. But actually, instead, they were performing Gnostic masses inside, which I'm not going to get into, but it's pretty uh, lurid. <laughs> uh, and they would consume cakes made from menstrual blood, supposedly. Uh, the house next door, fun fact, was actually the former estate of beer baron Adolphus Bush. Oh, this is where the like famous Bush, Bush... Yeah, Bush beer and... Uh, bush gardens huh. and so the, the the bush gardens were next door to parsons place uh this is all part of a strip that was referred to as millionaires row now before any of his uh rocket launches like he would supposedly chant crowley's hymn to pan uh and so when you when you uh talk to like you know uh parsons experts about this they're like eh, it's not that big of a deal i mean like it'd be like the same thing as like cheering for your football team or something like right before you do something exciting.
1: Well, I mean, how weird... Is it compared to any uh, invocation of a divine being when you're doing something like landing on the moon, right? Right. It's, yeah. a, it's like it's, it's, there's kind of a clash of, of worlds there. Now, Pan, by the way, or the great god Pan, if, if you will, uh, was of and course if you're the, an Arthur Macon fan. Yeah. And that is indeed a wonderful story that'll make you see Pan in new ways. But, uh, this was a Greek god of wild nature and sexuality, often represented as a satyr, uh, generally accompanied by a flock of nymphs.
5: So during World War II, Parsons is actually convinced to sell the shares that he has in Aerojet, and this amounted to $20,000, and he uses this to basically devote his life full-time to spirituality. Uh, and the reason behind this was actually that Aerojet had sold 51% of its stock to the General Tire and Rubber Company so they could keep up with the increased demand for production that the U.S. military had for them. And these new investors wanted to distance themselves from Parsons. Uh, that He was very eccentric. And this isn't just because of, like, the occult sex magic stuff, but also just, like, he was kind of risky on the rocket range as well. So they basically bought him out. He was only thirty years old at the time, so like he had started his own company mm-hmm. and divested and you know was living the life at thirty so this is where things start to turn a little sour for him
1: yeah and, and I sh- it's impossible not to note here at thirty years old at the time he has seven years left to live, yep like this is a guy who burned brightly for a short amount of time, younger when he died than you and I are now, yeah. yeah.
5: Uh, so he had an affair with his wife's 17-year-old sister, Sarah, and so his wife leaves him for the leader of their local OTO lodge. Parsons subsequently becomes the new head of the Pasadena OTO. Then this is when things with L. Ron Hubbard get weird. So he's invited to stay at the parsonage in nineteen forty-five. Parsons is super impressed with him. Like he thinks he's again, so like imagine I imagine both Hubbard and Crowley as being guys with like a D and D charisma of eighteen. Like they're super yeah. charismatic.
1: But they also see through charisma. So you can tell that like these are two guys that can probably only tolerate each other for short amounts of time. Yeah. Crowley isn't even there and he thinks that, that uh, Hubbard is a fraud.
5: He's writing letters to Parsons and everybody at the lodge saying like don't have anything to do with this guy he's a total con man which is ironic yeah Uh, still Parsons invites Hubbard to become his magic partner and they try to develop their own sex magic rituals specifically to summon the goddess Babylon, also known as the Scarlet Woman. This is all part of uh, Crowley's uh, Thelemic practice. So the idea here is they want to impregnate a woman with the elemental offspring that would be known as the Moon Child, and they call this project Babylon Working. As some people refer to the Moon Child as the Antichrist. I think it's a little different from that, but that's yeah. sort of like the shorthand uh, version for just like the general public to understand what they were up to.
1: Yeah, and uh, if I remember correctly, the, the Moonchild uh, and Babylon working uh, this comes into play in Grant Morrison's The Invisibles.
5: Yeah, very much so. Yeah, there's a whole uh, actually like a major plot yeah. that, that overarchs the whole thing. Yeah, the, they're trying to bring the creation the moon child of a Moonchild and like sort of uh, bringing about an apocalypse. Yeah. Um, so the same time as all this is going on, Parsons meets Marjorie Cameron, who's described as a woman who's a free spirit with red hair, and he thinks I did it. I summoned Babylon. She's got red hair. She's the scarlet woman. uh, Hubbard convinces Parsons in the meantime. He says, give me $20,000. I'm going to invest it in a boat scheme down in Florida, and we're going to get rich. And so he takes this $20,000, and Parsons, this is where I get confused. I don't think they've ever married. So it's Parsons' ex-wife's sister, Sarah. Uh, so she's not his second wife, but maybe she's his girlfriend. Hubbard runs off with her and the money and goes to Mexico. And Parsons is pissed, and he comes after them, and he claims that he cast a spell that invokes a thunderstorm that made Hubbard and Sarah's boat have to force back to land because the storm was so bad. They're, uh, you know, uh, uh, grabbed by the authorities. I think everything basically, like, washes out, like obviously Parsons isn't pals with them anymore it doesn't sound like he gets his money back or his girlfriend back but you know the, they basically sever that relationship
1: yeah and no no children came about from the from the union and that means real children or moon children
5: yeah no as far as we know but supposedly Marjorie says she had an abortion uh, so there's but there was no moon child that ever came out of this whole experiment and then all of this oto stuff actually is said to be a major influence on Hubbard when he starts Scientology years later. So it's interesting. Like If you look at the two side by side, they have a lot of similar sort of beliefs and practices. It's just like Hubbard dolled it up in a different way.
1: Yeah, again, it kind of comes down to repackaging something that already exists and selling it to a new client uh, and taking older ideas and making them more applicable to the modern individual. So this is kind of the sad part. So. You know, he's
5: he's ousted from Aerojet, he's lived this kind of, like, fantastic occult lifestyle in a mansion with parties, but now, like, he's lost his money to Hubbard, mm-hmm. uh, and he, and... he has no security clearance, he's... Well, well yeah, him. yeah, uh, and so he ends up doing odd jobs to make money, like repairing washing machines, pumping gas, fixing cars being a hospital orderly, and then designing pyrotechnics for the movies. My understanding was he was uh, building squibs. Okay. Uh, And so he worked, actually, as a chemical researcher for Hughes Aerospace. But in 1950, the FBI investigated him. This is how he loses his security clearance. They accused him of stealing documents from Hughes, and their claim was that he was going to exchange the documents, which were actually rocket plans, to the Israeli government Ah, so he could have admission into Israel uh, and be part of the newly founded government there. He was basically going to establish a rocket program for Israel. He lost all of his privileges and his security clearance and obviously the Hughes aerospace job. As far as I could tell, he and Marjorie, they stay together until his death. They eventually move into the carriage house that's behind the mansion. Now, another account that I read, though, says that they ended up renting a room over a garage on another estate. So I'm not quite sure. It sounds like they were living in a, uh, you know, a small house behind a larger mansion on this sort of millionaire's row area. But I can't tell if it was the
1: original uh, parsonage house or if it was somewhere else. All right, we're going to take one more break, conduct one more prayer to our um, pagan gods of advertising. And then when we come back, we will discuss Parson's death and his legacy.
3: Father's Day is coming. A day we celebrate the guy who's always there for us to crack a dad joke. Well, you know what's not a dad joke? Getting $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of his favorite cocktail capsule pack. $50 off. No dad joke. See, this is a dad joke. I lost my glasses today, and guess who I bumped into? Everyone. But the Bartesian Cocktail Maker? It's no joke. Each cocktail capsule contains real fruit juices and all-natural bitters, so dad can make over 60 premium cocktails he loves. Sidecars, old fashions, gimlets, all with the push of a button. So, for the dad who loves a cocktail with friends and a good joke from time to time, get the Bartesian Premium Cocktail Maker. $50 off now until Father's Day. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand.
2: Tired of wandering the aisles at Walgreens trying to find the best deals? Well, we've got something that'll make your shopping experience a whole lot sweeter. Introducing Drop, the app that rewards you with free gift cards just for doing your everyday shopping, whether it's groceries, toiletries, or your favorite snacks. With Drop, every purchase earns you points towards fantastic rewards. Download the Drop app now. Use code DROP55 when you sign up to get $5 in points.
6: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
5: Okay, we're back. So Parsons died in a really horrible way. Like, ugh, it was grisly. So it's June 17th, 1952. He's in the garage that he lives above. This is in Pasadena still. Uh, He's mixing chemicals and there's an explosion. The garage blows up. He's still conscious when responders get to the scene, but he's lost his right arm. He couldn't speak because half of his face was mutilated. Now, criminologists who investigated the scene later, they thought that it was caused by fulminate of mercury that was being mixed in a coffee can and then was dropped in the garage. And this burst ignited other volatile chemicals. Imagine a guy like Parsons. He's probably got all yeah. kinds of stuff in this lab. And, and some of his former coworkers had issues with his safety. Mm, right? Yeah, so. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's thought that Parsons was working on an order of explosives for one of these movies he was working on he died a few hours later like they got him to the hospital but he just he didn't survive there's all kinds of speculation around this. Some people say he was assassinated. Some people say it was a magical experiment gone wrong. Most likely, though, from the evidence that was acquired at the scene, he was just careless with these chemicals. Now, Marjorie Cameron, on the other hand, says that that's totally unlike her husband, that he was super safe with his chemicals. And she thinks that he was murdered somehow. Uh, and he was only, as we mentioned, 37 years old when this happens. So, we go on through history, and because of all of this sort of scandalous activity, the writings of Parsons were subsequently purged from the academic papers that were stored at Caltech. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, this is a guy who had a huge influence on an important scientific aspect of American society. In 1972, a crater on the moon is named after him. Uh, Cameron herself was publishing his essays after he died, uh, and in fact, in 2014, to mark his 100th birthday, a publishing house put out a collection of his poems that he wrote about Marjorie Cameron that were, it was called Songs of the Witch Woman, and it featured illustrations
1: by her, like she drew a couple of Oh, yeah, yeah, pictures. seen some of these. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I already mentioned uh, Werner von Braun and other individuals, people who worked with Parsons and knew him or just knew of his work and knew how it influenced the trajectory of, of rocket technology, you know, they would continue to speak out for him and say, this is a guy who deserves more credit for what he did.
5: Yeah, I mean, so Pendle, who is really, like, as far as I can tell, the go-to source on this. There's another book about him, but it's written by somebody who used a pseudonym. But Pendle is the person who, like, uh, anytime, like uh, somebody writes an article about uh, Parsons, they find Pendle, and he actually, you know, is a journalist himself. So, for for instance, like Motherboard's piece in twenty fourteen that was all about like the the hundred year anniversary of, of Parsons, that was written by Pendle, mm-hmm. uh, and Pendle's idea is like, well, yeah, like they they purged him from this sort of academic uh, history. But then, like, when you go and you get, like, official responses from people at the JPL, they say, like, what do you mean? Like, we, we totally recognize that Jack Parsons was part of our founding, you know? Yeah. But, so there's a little bit of push and pull there, but really, like, if you
1: want the full story, you're not going to find it uh, in Caltech's, like, archives. Now, I, I like that you, you, you say story, because that's one of the things here with a figure like Parsons is that... When we look back on history, like we're not just looking at a list of things, we are looking at at stories and often conflicting stories, stories uh, and different uh, different versions of the truth that are that are struggling for dominance. And then, how do you fit a character like Parsons into all of that? Like, what does he what does yeah. he mean, right? And uh, we want we want to look at at someone like him or Crowley or any of these other figures we've looked at. We want to look at them like prophets or harbingers. Uh, because on the other hand, the idea that ultimately Parsons was just one of many—that Parsons is just another example, maybe a more noteworthy example of someone who did not fit into the the mainstream demands. They they didn't fit the the mold that that people were supposed to be poured into at the time. Yeah, uh, like that's. That's maybe a, a bit depressing to think of it that way, and we tend to think, "Oh, well, he was he was unique; he was something special, and he was he he was something special." He his like I say, his he stands out because his story is 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 different from, than, than most of what has uh, has survived to us.
5: Yeah, I think the appeal of him in particular is the sort of dichotomy between the universe of what we think of as rational science combined mm-hmm. with what we think of irrational magic, right? But again, like going back to this idea that Parsons had of himself, he didn't think of himself as being like rational or irrational on either side. He thought all of it was woven into his identity as being somebody who uh, faced challenges and uh, tried to like basically make the impossible possible.
1: Yeah, and there's there's much to say about where Parsons and other similar figures fall into the trajectory of 20th century American culture. There's an excellent uh, Ian magazine article by Benjamin Breen, titled Into the Mystic, From Stonehenge to Silicon Valley, How Technology uh, Nurtured New Age Ideas in a World s- Supposedly Stripped of Its Magic. And I think the title gives much of it away. But uh, the author here argues that there is a direct link between the occult movements of uh, the late Enlightenment and the New Age movements of today and that it ties into the power of technology. So I want to I read a quick quote from this. He says... Quote, we might also regard the New Age movements of the 1970s as arising from, rather than defeating, this Apollo-era conviction in the power of technology. In the 1930s, while he was immersing himself in the theoretical physics that underpinned the first atomic bomb, for instance, the young physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer was also learning Sanskrit and compulsively reading and comparing himself to ancient Vedic scripture. Similarly, even the rocket scientist Jack Parsons was co-founding the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at Caltech. He was beca- becoming immersed in alchemical lore and occultism, performing sex magic in his Pasadena mansion and wrote in a, with a rotating cast of bohemian Los Angeles characters. Parsons would chant Aleister Crowley's uh, hymn to the Greek god Pan before every rocket test, and he claimed his discovery of solid rocket fuel in 1942, which laid the groundwork for the Apollo space program derived from his mystical quote into so, what's interesting about this passage to me is,
5: in their description of these connections between um, magical enlightenment and New Age movement, they they actually mention two things. Oppenheimer mm-hmm. is also in the Invisibles, yeah, uh, and the whole idea behind like the bomb being somewhat like connected to just the, the logical sort of mystical journey that's in that book, right? But then also. The rocket is named Apollo. Yeah. And Apollian beliefs and worship of the god Apollo are built into a lot of these occult backgrounds that we find when we go digging, you know, back into people like John Dee, etc.
1: Yeah. And even in our modern era, we can't stop. Naming spacecraft after either gods or at least mythological beings, right? Yeah, like uh, we did that episode on NASA's Osiris Rex, yep, named yep. for the Egyptian god Osiris, or or consider China's Yutu, uh, uh, the the jade rabbit. Uh, this is the lunar module, and it was named for the the mythical animal tasked with the pounding of the elixir of immortality on the far side of the moon. Yeah, so. This is really like an interesting, I think, through line for stuff to blow your mind.
5: And one of the reasons why I thought, like, when I, when I first joined the show, I was like, we gotta do a Jack Parsons episode. Like, mm-hmm. this is the most stuff to blow your mind of stuff to blow your mindy topics. But, uh, because as we've seen through like John Dee and uh, other people that we've looked into, these other like countercultural characters involved in science throughout history, there's a through line that does connect the occult and sort of magical thinking and romanticism to what we think of today as being empirical science, right? And they're very much related. I think it's interesting that I don't know necessarily that there's a lot of that going on today. Maybe it's just that, I mean, maybe the John Parsons of today, we don't know that they're having sex magic rituals or something like that. But um, it's just curious to me that science has sort of divorced itself entirely from this idea of more of a renaissance uh form of knowledge
1: yeah i think that's a good point all right, so there you have it. Jack Parsons. If you want a deeper dive into uh, either his scientific achievements or certainly his uh, occult interests, um, we, we mentioned uh, the, the book at the top of the episode. Yeah, George Pendle's book. It's Strange
5: Angel, I believe. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a fantastic read. I've read the whole book, and I, I really recommend it. Um, Pendle is not only like an excellent researcher who went out and found primary resources for this book, but he tells a really compelling narrative, too.
1: Yeah, and uh, hey, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, do so. Like, for instance, is there another uh, counterculture avenger out there that we need to be uh, covering on the show? Yeah, we let you, us know. Yeah, please do because
5: I feel like um, maybe it feels like we're starting to run out of them. Like we we've covered a lot of them uh, with Lily and D and um, Sasha Shulgin.
1: Yeah. Oh well we we need a we need to visit uh, the world of Timothy Leary at some point. That is Each true. We yeah. Have, have oh, we you got.
5: you never did a Timothy Leary episode before. We.
1: It, it, we have an older episode that that discusses him somewhat okay. but i don't feel i don't feel that we gave him is is close close consideration as he's due yeah know? timothy
5: o'leary is like the captain america of this countercultural yeah. avengers yeah oh uh, yeah please let us know so ways to get in touch with us we're on facebook we're on twitter we're on tumblr and we're on instagram you can write us through all of those social media channels you can also find them all on stufftoblowyourmind.com
1: yeah and if you want to get in touch with us uh, via the old technology, the old ways, uh, you can do so by sending us an email at blowthemind For
3: more on this and thousands of other topics, visit
0: howstuffworks.com.
2: Tired of routine Walgreens trips? Get rewarded for shopping with Drop. With Drop, you can earn free gift cards on groceries, gas, and more. Download Drop now and use code DROP55 to get $5 in points. Join Drop today.
0: You
3: wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one, or home to vibes like this.